Hello, everyone. Happy pre-Christmas and welcome to the culture where we talk about the things that really matter. And ahead of Christmas, I wanted to finish the new the old year by finishing our series on Hemingway uh, before we move on to five albums you have to listen to before you die. Uh, but Hemingway has been great. You, you guys have loved it in terms of the uh, the uh, algorithm tells me that. And, and I'm glad it encourages me to keep doing these cultural ones into the new year as we talk about geopolitics, which defends our culture, we can then talk about the things that are worth defending. And certainly Hemingway is one of them. And we're here to look at his last great work, The Old Man in the Sea, uh, written in 1952, published in 1952 by his usual publisher, Charles Scribner's Sons, though his longtime um, editor and uh, literary agent had just died. And so Hemingway was beginning to confront the demons of his own mortality at the time. Um, it's a novella written between December 1950 and February 1951. Um, as ever, Hemingway is the protagonist. Um, here it's Santiago the fisherman, an aging Cuban fisherman, uh, catches a giant marlin, and after a titanic struggle, um, he loses his bounty to the sharks. He defeats the marlin, but in bringing it back, he loses his bounty to the sharks who eat it as it's tied to his boat on the way back to, to port. It was released to critical uh, acclaim and record sales. Uh, since that time, there's been a lot of criticism of Old Man in the Sea and a real question, does it belong in the top tier of Hemingway work or not? We're going to have a look at that today. This is the sixth and final novel Hemingway wrote during his lifetime. The first, which we covered, is The Great Fiesta, written in 1926. The second, the almost as great Farewell to Arms, written in 1929. And then he really fell off. He, he wrote the, the mess that is to have and have not in 1937. Trust me, the um, movie version with Bogart and Bacall, uh, and I believe William Faulkner was the screenwriter for that, his great frenemy. Um, but to have and have not as a novel is a mess. Again, the, the movie certainly worth seeing. But the novel is a mess. There's Mandela knocking books over. And then his fourth novel, For Whom the Bell Tolls, we covered, certainly one of his best. Um, then he sloughs off again after the war into Across the River and Into the Trees, which is a bit of a mess. And after his death in 1970, posthumously was published Islands in the Stream. But Old Man in the Sea is the last novel published during his lifetime. And it really has the ring of it as the ultimate great man's last hurrah. Uh, but we'll go into its its strengths and its weaknesses in a minute. Again, he began writing it in Cuba in 1950-51 in a tumultuous period in his own personal life, which was usual. One thing you certainly have to say about Hemingway, un unlike Scott Fitzgerald, his great rival, was he didn't let personal craziness get in the way of his work, that he was always a craftsman and that this came across. Um, and the chaos going on in his life um, at the moment was there was a breakdown in relations with his fourth wife, Mary, and he'd fallen in love with his teenage muse, Adriana Ivancic. Um, and Mary at one point left, um, and Ivancic actually wrote did the original drawings that were the cover of Old Man in the Sea. He tired of her as a muse, and Mary came back. But in this period of absolute personal chaos, Hemingway found himself writing very well, despite the nuttiness of the time. He completed the work in just six weeks, writing about a thousand words a day, which is twice as fast as he normally wrote. Think about writing 
Hemingway sentences, which are works of art in their own, that the technical ability to write the spare, muscular, gerund-tense Hemingway language uh, really would have been something to keep up. He writes about a thousand words a day. Uh, on a good day, I write about 1,500, but I certainly don't write in Hemingway's style, although certainly a lot of that has rubbed off on me for what I do. I write using very muscular, very American prose. They're actually action verbs in my work, which separates me from most academics. But he's writing very quickly, very confidently. He's very pleased with the work, and despite the personal chaos of going from Mary to Adriana and then back to Mary, uh, somehow amidst all the nuttiness, he's making it work. Um, and again, at the time, it met with both uh, personal, commercial, and creative acclaim. He liked it. It won the 1953 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, which he'd always been um, had been robbed from him over both Fiesta and, uh, which I think he certainly should have won for, and Farewell to Arms. Um, and he was, again, stopped from winning it for whom the bell tolls by it not being given out that year. Uh, that's how bad things were for him, that, that to stop him, the chairman of the board, he would have won, but they said, we just won't give one out uh, for whom the bell tolls in 1940 as the war came on. And so finally he gets the prize, the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, and in fact, a bigger prize awaited in 1954 for his collective work. Hemingway is at last awarded what he'd always wanted, the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1954. And the only work that was specifically mentioned in the whole of his work there was The Old Man in the Sea. It's the only specifically cited work, which is quite extraordinary uh, that that's the only thing that's mentioned. I mean, it's good, but it's not nearly as good, I would argue, as Fiesta Farewell to Arms, For Whom the Bell Tolls, or even Snows of Kilimanjaro. But it's it's the rage. Over time, this acclaim has, has lessened, and partly because literary scholarship has become woke and absolutely crazy. There are people who say things like, well, San Diego wasn't much of an environmentalist. No Cuban fishermen in the 1950s were not worried about global warming. Only readers of The Guardian are worried about this. And this really came across, that this, this really misunderstands what Hemingway was trying to do. Um, the other accusation, which I think uh, is better, is that there are no women to speak of in Old Man in the Sea. And there's no doubt that Hemingway did not write women as well as he wrote men, that the protagonists of his stories um, are, always, are always men, and women are something they look to as figures, be it Maria of Robert Jordan, and for whom the bell tolls Catherine Barclay. Um, for Frederick Henry in Farewell to Arms or Lady Brett Ashley in uh, Fiesta, that he's much better at writing men than women. I think that feminist critique is true. I think probably Hemingway would agree with that. Um, I don't think that lessens the universality of what it's doing, but it's certainly a, a mark against him. And then again, in, in, in Old Man in the Sea, as was true for Whom the Bell Tolls, there's this very opaque pseudo-medieval language uh, that would never have been used by a Cuban. And I think I think this is a legitimate concern, that whereas in Farewell to Arms, I think the language worked, even though it was almost made up, as is, by the way, Hemingway's modern English style, about language, rather than being seen as some sort of artificial writer, I think he's incredibly original and creative. So few writers are about the way they go about writing, the actual words they use. Hemingway invented a whole new way of writing, uh, Hemingway-esque writing. I don't think that should be held against him. And I think that for whom the bell tolls, the kind of feudalistic language to denote Spain being a very different place from the Western Anglosphere works. It works less well 
in Old Man and the Sea. So, I'm, I mean, I think this is a judgment call, but I'm somewhat open to that criticism. I don't buy in the New Age. He, he doesn't care about the environment. That's just somebody who has tenure and has absolutely nothing to say. Um, I do buy that he doesn't write women as well as men. I think that's a legitimate point. And although I think writers tend to write one better than the other, you'd argue Jane Austen writes women better than men. I love Austen, and we may very well do a series of Austen uh, because she's so startlingly modern um, and certainly deserves to be in the top three or four people ever to write in English. But she writes women better than men, and, and we'll probably take that on because I think that'll be interesting. But Hemingway writes men better than women, no doubt about it. And sometimes in his originality of language, it becomes artificial and he gets it wrong. And I think it, it drifts into that in Old Man in the Sea, even if in general it still works. Um, the basic story um, is that Santiago, the old fisherman, has not caught a fish for almost three months. And he's considered by the other villagers who are fishermen very unlucky. Um, he loses, um, because he's not caught a fisherman and, and economically he's in terrible shape. Um, he loses Manolin, who's his sidekick, his protege. He loses touch with his sidekick. And they used to talk about the great Joe DiMaggio. They love baseball. Um, and DiMaggio, interestingly enough, his family were Italian-American fishermen, was his background. And they talk, and because of this, Santiago feels an affinity with DiMaggio, the, probably the greatest baseball player rounded out ever to live. Certainly won the most championships per year's played with the Yankees as their center fielder. And he and Manolin talk about this. Again, no women in the picture. He likes to catch fish. He likes his protege. And he likes Joe DiMaggio. But he loses Manolin because he can't afford to keep him because he's not catching anything. And the villagers consider him very unlucky. On the 85th day, he goes out early and catches a giant marlin, the biggest fish he's ever seen. Um, and he tries to haul him in. But the fish is so big, it tows his boat, the skiff, further out to sea. Um, and at one point, the marlin comes up next to the boat, and it's actually bigger than his small boat. Um, and so he's in this tug of war, holding on for dear life with his reel to the, to, to the marlin, which is big enough to pull the boat. He increasingly respects the fish and what the fish represents, his battle with life. Um, on the third morning of the struggle, um, and you can argue this is religious on the third day, there's certainly a lot of religious imagery to Old Man in the Sea, uh, the, the marlin um, comes near enough that Santiago manages to harpoon it and ties it to the boat. He defeats the marlin after three days of holding on and struggling. He finally defeats the marlin, and so he ties it to the boat. Unfortunately, with, with, with a, cho a choice piece of a, a fish there, sharks, um, certainly present in the Gulf, begin to attack this very inviting prize, and sharks take 40 pounds out of it, before Santiago kills one shark, but in killing it, he loses the harpoon that has been essential to killing the fish and keeping the sharks at bay. But ever inventive, Santiago puts a knife on the end of, um, of one of his oars and uses it as a spear, kills three more sharks until the knife breaks. Um, he then manages to club two more sharks as he goes. But by now the marlin is half-eaten, and, and, exha and exhausted, he falls asleep in the boat, and while he's asleep, as eventually has to happen, meaning human beings are limited, are fallible, and have their limits, the sharks eat the rest. Sanioka makes it back at last to his shack, very bruised and battered from his showdown with the marlin. Manolin comes upon him and sees the skeleton of the giant fish and is moved by this 
uh, promising to occupy to, to work with Santiago into the future, and they measure it, and the marlin is 18 feet long in total, and he then drifts off into sleep, and that is the basic outlay of what goes on here, and this is this is again really a critical moment for him. Uh, the story of the old fisherman. Um, is one that, that Hemingway can do. And again, another critique that I don't buy, well, it's not exact in terms of the fishing. Like anybody who bothers to look this up has tenure and has nothing to do with their day job. Uh, but Hemingway really imbues the story with, with veracity in general, if not in the specifics, because he, was a, he greatly enjoyed big game fishing and was good at it. He won a series of tournaments in Cuba about marlin catching, knew a great deal about them both in terms of how to catch them, but also uh, in terms of practicality. Um, he would get scientists on board to, to look at the different kinds of marlin as he would go out in his boat. The Pilar was, was Hemingway's boat. But this was a subject, again, he was writing about, writers write about what they know about. And Hemingway knew an awful lot about fishing. And that veracity really, really comes forth um, as, as this goes along. Uh, he reunites, as I said, with his wife, who as ever helps him edit the book. Uh, Mary at the end of it. He'd met her in World War II, another good war where Hemingway had done reporting and been on the front lines. And Mary had been there and he met her and their up and down relationship had had an up here. And again, there was huge popularity when this came out. A real, you know, that Hemingway has a third act that unlike Fitzgerald, he doesn't just fizzle out into personal chaos. The key was that Life magazine uh, published the entirety which was unheard of. Life magazine, incredibly popular in America at the time, uh, published in, in May the, the, the entire novella, 5.3 million copies uh, of, of the issue with Old Man and the Sea sold in two days, which was unheard of. And Old Man and the Sea was on the New York Times bestseller list for an, for an amazing 27, 26, pardon me, weeks. Um, and I think that, again, for all the talk about the pseudo-language, the lack of environmental control, the lack of writing women, um, he really does understand what he's telling, that by simplifying the story, by telling this very simple story, which was a Spanish folktale, a version of the story had been told to Hemingway 30 or 40 years before. And this, this folktale goes back about the old man and the giant marlin, goes back into 40 or 50 years before that to the 1880s or 1890s in Cuba, that this is a folktale that's been, that's been told. And by taking this folktale, by stripping it down, Again, less is more with Hemingway. By stripping it down, he makes what should be a very simple story a complicated and universal story. Because in the end, and, and you know, one thinks of the English politician Enoch Powell saying, all political lives end in failure. Unless something happens and you die very young for an odd set of reasons, all political careers end in failure, as Enoch Powell put it. And this is really Hemingway's large, this is his summing up of his philosophy. And that's why I think it works. Yes, they're religious overtones, though I don't think that's the primary thrust of the story for all that they're three days, they're fishermen, uh, they're giant fish. Um, they're certainly religious imagery. But I think this is Hemingway summing up all the things we've talked about up until now. Just as all political careers end in failure, all lives do as well, if looked at in a certain way. And let's have a look back at our, our protagonists. In Fiesta, Jake isn't going to ever end up with Lady Brett. Um, he's been too maimed. He's been too physically maimed by the by World War One, and she's been too emotionally maimed into nymphomania 
by World War I for them ever to have any sort of romantic relationship. So the key thrust of Fiesta ends in failure. In Farewell to Arms, it certainly does, because Frederick Henry's wife, Catherine Barclay, having his baby, the baby dies and she dies in childbirth. So after his titanic struggle to make it across the Italian border in the Alps into Switzerland, the hope of that couple working dies with her premature death. When we look at Snows of Kilimanjaro, death is the, is the first thing that's mentioned, which is why it's such a great story. Uh, there's no suspense to it. He's going to die. And instead, it's looking back at the failures of life. It's a dying man having a look back at what's gone right and what's gone wrong and what that means to him. That's what matters there. So again, a very interesting failure. He's learning in his failure through the terrible wisdom that comes with failure about his own life. And that's why it's such a moving story. For whom the bell tolls, same thing. Robert Jordan doesn't make it away with Maria. He blows up the bridge, not that it matters, as the fascists have adjusted because of spies in the loyalist ranks. And so he futilely blows up a bridge, dies doing so when it doesn't matter in terms of the strategy of the war, loses his future with Maria. All these guys, very practically, can be considered failures, just as Santiago is. He, he lands the dream fish of his life, struggles manfully with the fish, uh, proving Hemingway's dictat about courage, that, it's, that all courage is, is grace under pressure, um, and yet loses practically the marlin as the sharks eat it as he tows it back into port. So in each of these five cases, there's been abject failure at the end of the day. But Hemingway, I think, is one of the reasons he's moving and lasts is there's a positive stoical aspect to this failure. Are these failures or aren't they? In each case, the protagonist realizes something important about himself. In the case of Fiesta, Jake sees the impossibility of him and Lady Brett coming together. There's a terrible wisdom that comes from failure. In Farewell to Arms, he realizes that, 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 that Catherine was indeed worth it, that his sacrifices, even if they end in death, all sacrifices for humans end in death. But that doesn't mean the struggle is not worth it. For whom the bell tolls the same. Robert Jordan does the right thing because he believes it's the right thing to do and ends up sacrificing himself in the way so many millions of others did. But in the end, these sacrifices in World War II stopped the dark night of fascism from overrunning the world. And in the case of Snows of Kilimanjaro, this beautiful knowledge of how to love a woman, of what he cares about, of what matters and what doesn't, comes to him at death. The same thing with Santiago. He fights for the fish because that's what men do. They struggle, they rage, rage against the dying of the light, to quote Dylan Thomas. And they ultimately fail and death overcomes us all. But it's the struggle and it's in how the fall works that matters. Um, and the great line, summing up all of Hemingway's philosophy and the point that I'm making, comes in Old Man in the Sea late in the day. Um, just as the Beatles at the end of Abbey Road say, in the last line they ever sang together, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Finally uniting George Harrison's Hindu mysticism with John Lennon's angry yearnings and the pithy phrasing of Paul McCartney all come together in the love you take is equal to the love you make. For Hemingway, the summing up of Santiago is the summing up of all the work that we've seen. A man can be destroyed but not defeated. A man can be destroyed, 
but not defeated. A man can be destroyed, but not defeated. I know in the black times in my life, I've come back to this phrase over and over and over again, because it does sum up the tragedy of being human, but the exultation and the glory of being a human. And with that happy, positive Hemingway note, it's left for me to only wish you the merriest of Christmases. See you on into the new year and know how grateful I am for our community and for the chance to do things like look at what Ernest Hemingway wrought. Take care and have the merriest of Christmases.